Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your love for us in revealing yourself to us that we might be blessed by you and have fellowship with you and walk not only before your face but with you and you among us, that you would uh, deliver and save us. We pray that you would uh, bless your word this day as we study it, uh, that we might uh, be moved to love and gratitude as well as to use it. Uh, to receive it and act upon it by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can turn in your hymnal to page 847. Uh, 847. Um, I don't know if it is helpful at this point to be printing out the outlines, uh, since we also have the Confession of Faith itself uh, in the hymnal, so maybe afterwards you can let me know if, uh, if that's still useful or if we should just uh, have the uh, confession of faith that you are looking at as we teach through it. But today we come to chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of Holy Scripture. Uh, before I get started, though, I wanted to follow up uh, on uh, a little bit from last week's historical introduction. I talked about the setting of the Westminster Assembly, uh, the assembly of uh, theologians and ministers who wrote the Confession of Faith as well as some other documents, and the question arose concerning like the legitimacy of the resistance to the king during that time period, first by uh, the Scots, the Scottish people, and uh, to some extent then as well the, the English Parliament. Um, Concerning the Scottish resistance to the imposition of bishops and a new book of common prayer, uh, there was the popular protest, kind of the protest from the people that happened initially that I had mentioned. But then following that, the Scottish church, the General Assembly, uh, abolished these things. And then the Scottish nation, its nobles, its people, its parliament, subscribed to the National Covenant, which kind of like our Declaration of Independence um, both stated their position and also defended it, you know, uh, giving their legal stance, uh, backing up what they were uh, doing, that, that they were supporting uh, the law and their covenant. When the king then sought to overrule the Scottish church, the Scottish government is the one that resisted these impositions by force, um, although they maintained their allegiance to the king. They just were trying to interpose on these particular issues. Um, So even though the resistance began kind of on a a popular level, the bishop wars were a matter of interposition by government authority and a successful one that caused the king to back down. And like we said, caused him to need money and call the English parliament into existence. And they had a number of grievances then uh, and reforms that they were seeking. And English resistance to the king eventually followed a similar pattern. Uh, And so it was actually Samuel Rutherford, one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, that during the assembly wrote his book Lex Rex, or The Law and the Prince, uh, which kind of became one of the classic works, not the first work, but one of the classic works on uh, against the divine right of kings, on what is lawful resistance, uh, resistance by a lower magistrate, not just an individual. Uh, And he wrote it at that time to justify those actions that were be, being uh, taken. So, uh, for more on, on 
you know, why they were doing what they were doing at that time. Um, that, that book is available. So I just wanted to clarify a few things there uh, concerning the context of the Westminster Assembly. Um, but let's now go to chapter one. We're going to look at this. It is a historical document. It is wisdom that has been tested through the uh, centuries, uh, but it's also not just a historic relic, um, but it's also our uh, present-day confession of faith because uh, I believe it is uh, a biblical confession, and that's the primary reason why we're going to study it. Um, I'm going to read a passage and then talk about it instead of reading the whole chapter at once, but hopefully we can uh, cover the whole thing. In part, I'm going quicker through this chapter because I taught a series on this. Uh, So if you want more detail on this chapter, you can look that up on our sermon audio page. It's called Doctrine of Scripture, and there's like eight or nine lectures on this particular chapter. Um, But the four big points throughout this chapter is that Scripture is necessary, Scripture has a supreme authority, that Scripture is sufficient, and that Scripture uh, is sufficiently clear. Uh, So we would call that the necessity, the authority, the sufficiency, and the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity being somewhat ironic as a less clear word for clearness, (laughs) for clarity. Um, But those uh, four attributes are attributes of Scripture that are drawn out in this chapter. So let me go ahead and start by reading the first paragraph. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. This is an important place for the confession of faith to begin, uh, because it's going to build the rest of the confession of faith on Scripture. And so it begins with the origin of Scripture and its necessity. Basically, since Scripture is now the only form of special revelation given to us, it's necessary for the knowledge of the gospel unto salvation. Uh, It begins by talking about general or natural revelation, the revelation that God has given through the light of nature, essentially through reason and conscience, and also through his works of creation and providence, things that are outside of us that we can see and observe. Uh, This is called uh, general revelation. It's inherent in the order of creation. And it's wrong to deny that. You know, some skeptics would deny that God reveals anything through nature. Some Christians might deny that God reveals much through nature, or or at least downplay that more than is necessary. But then it's also possible to overestimate natural revelation and think that it's uh, sufficient, that the deists would say that Scripture really doesn't add anything to what God's already 
revealed in nature. We, we can have a natural religion that gets above all these denominational distinctives and just be guided by reason alone. Um, natural revelation is important, but, uh, but it doesn't have everything. God reveals his existence, his goodness, his wisdom, his power through these things, and it's sufficient to hold man uh, unexcusable leaves him without an excuse that he knows God and that he ought to worship and serve God, but that he falls short of doing so. Uh, that's not the only uses. We could also say it, it's as believers, these, uh, this revelation is something for us to meditate upon, for us to worship God for. Psalm 104 is a great meditation upon his works of creation and providence. In Acts 14, Paul uses it as a witness to God's goodness in his proclamation of the gospel, um, that it supports the proclamation of the gospel, that the God who has shown you his goodness already, despite your ingratitude, has uh, in that uh, same goodness provided a way of salvation, which I now declare to you. But this natural revelation is not sufficient to give knowledge of salvation. Salvation is on God's um, choice. He didn't have to offer salvation. Originally, there was no need for salvation. Man was perfect. And even in the garden, before the fall, God gave special revelation. Special revelation being like verbal revelation. God spoke to Adam and Eve. Uh, he spoke to Adam before man fell because he entered into a covenant with Adam. He drew nearer to Adam and made promises to Adam and bound himself to Adam and gave special direction not to eat of that particular tree. And so there was even special revelation there to establish a covenant. But we needed a new covenant once that was broken. And so for the covenant of grace, God gave new special revelation. And that happened in various ways. You think of visions and prophecies and and types, and ceremonies, and uh, various ways that God revealed his will, and it wasn't always written. Uh, There were uh, visual and um, uh, the mouth of the prophet by which he revealed his word, but even in the Old Testament, this was eventually committed to writing. Moses was a prophet. He spoke to the people, but then he also wrote it down and handed it to the priests for them to teach the people, Uh, and this would go on. Uh, throughout the Old Testament and then the New Testament. You know, Luke opens his gospel by saying, you've been taught these things by the eyewitnesses and the ministers, but now so that you might be certain, I'm going to write it, it, commit it to writing. I'm going to write it down for you in an orderly account. And so that way the the church would have it throughout the ages. And this process of revelation culminated with the coming of Jesus Christ as Hebrews 1 and 2 describes, that he is in these last days spoken by his Son. There's no future greater age that's going to progress beyond Jesus uh, where new revelation will be needed, but rather the message first declared by the Lord and then by his apostles has been committed to writing. And so those other ways of revealing his will are no longer necessary and, and have ceased. And so... Scripture is the only form of this special revelation, and therefore it is necessary for saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that would be the necessity of Scripture. The next point, which covers much of this chapter, is that of authority. Holy Scripture is God's word, and therefore it has supreme 
authority. Let me begin by reading paragraph two. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And I hope it's okay if I don't necessarily read all the books here, but you can see them written there. It's the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books. Did I get it right? 30, 37, 29. Now I'm doubting myself. The, the books of the Old Testament, there's 66 in total. 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. Yeah, pretty sure that's right. Um, it lists them all here, all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Second Timothy 3, Paul says that the scriptures make one wise unto salvation, and that all scripture is breathed out by God, is given by inspiration, and is profitable for uh, teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness. In other words, to be the rule of faith in life. What you ought to believe, what you ought not to believe. What you ought to do, what you ought not to do. And is given by God for that purpose. Now, you'll notice that these books do not include other books. Uh, what books are not in this list that is significant? Would others, other churches perhaps include other books that are not in this list? The Apocrypha. Yes, uh, the present-day Roman Catholic Church uh, would include some other books uh, as canonical, and that's what paragraph 3 speaks about. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than any other human writings. And so... The books of the Old New Testaments are scripture are because they are inspired by God. They are to be the rule of faith and life. But if it's not inspired by God, it's not uh, to be the rule of faith and life, not part of the canon. And the Apocrypha was uh, not uh, received by the Jews of Jesus' day as part of the oracles of God, as canonical scripture. When Josephus, for example, mentions the books of the Old Testament that were laid up in the temple, that were... Uh, recognized. It's the books that Protestants have in their Old Testament. The Apocrypha are other books written between the Testaments during that time that are generally good books as far as human writings go, um, but did not have uh, prophetic backing. In fact, some of them mention the fact that there were no prophets in those times. They have various historical errors and contradictions, and uh, gradually through the history of the church, um, some people began to receive them as scripture, but not everyone. Uh, Jerome, Athanasius, others did not. Augustine did. It wouldn't be until late medieval church councils, such as Florence and Trent, that the Roman Catholic Church would uh, receive them as scripture. And so the reformers would say, God delivered the oracles of God to the Jews. Look at Romans 3. Um, Jesus did not correct them for mishandling, you know, the reception of Scripture. He said, search the Scriptures that you have. Um, he taught from the, the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms, you know, the typical divisions of the Old Testament, did not recognize uh, the Apocrypha. <clears throat> now, Scripture ought to be 
believed and obeyed because it is God's word. That is the basis of its authority. The church can't just decide what is God's word and what's not on on its own whim or authority. It recognizes what is already authoritative and canonical, what's delivered to it as God's word. And that's the basis of its authority. As it says, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. And so that is the basis of its authority. The church is created by the word of God, is to be a faithful minister of the word of God, but ought not to lord over uh, scripture uh, as if it's the original authority that gives it its authority. Now, paragraph five mentions the recognition of scripture. Well, how then does the church recognize what is God's word? How do we know that this is God's word? that these books in particular, this canon of Scripture is his word. Um, And chapter 5 says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts." And so, what persuades us, you know, what, what, the, the Word is its own testimony to itself. The Word is self-authenticating, uh, is, is one way to describe it. It doesn't have to appeal to another authority outside itself. Uh, it has the, the fingerprint of God within it. You know, one particularly uh, persuasive evidence that you know, I find in it is the consent of all the parts, that though it was written by many human authors over many centuries, uh, that it is unified, that prophecies are fulfilled, that it tells one story, one doctrine uh, throughout uh, all of it. And that's even a biblical test of canonicity. Remember in the Old Testament, the prophets were tested by whether what they said came true and whether they were faithfully leading people to the same God. If they were leading you away from the true God, even if what they said came true, came true, you still ought to reject them. But those two tests were at least beginning to be you know, basic self-evidencing tests of Scripture. But even all, all the evidence is there, man in his sin is still blind to the truth, is still going to reject it. Uh, it takes the Holy Spirit working in us that, uh, that we become those who are persuaded of its infallible truth and divine authority. As Paul says in Second Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, that these things are freely given by the Spirit of God. He has revealed these things, uh, but the natural man does not receive the things of God. Uh, the spiritual person, the one who has been born again by the Spirit, he is the one who is able to receive and understand and believe uh, the things that are freely given by God. And so it is by his grace 
uh, that we receive it. And that gives us our full persuasion and assurance. So it's the word and spirit that is ultimately decisive. Now, I want to skip over to section 8, paragraph 8. I'll I'll cover the other ones here in a minute. But still on the topic of authority, describes the language of Scripture. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Now, first of all, the vulgar language does not mean what we usually use the word vulgar language to refer to. Now, vulgar language here just means the common language, the the, the language that people use and understand. Um, there's two things happening here. First of all, it's affirming the, uh, the de- decisive authority of the Scripture in its original languages, which were immediately inspired by God and have been preserved by God through His providence. But at the same time, that Scriptures ought to be translated, can be translated, and ought to be translated uh, into the language of people that... Uh, the whole people of God might have the use and benefit of Scripture. Um, What was the language of the Old Testament originally written in? Hebrew? Hebrew, Hebrew, yes. Uh, There's a few parts in Aramaic, but that's generally kind of grouped as a a type of Hebrew, close enough that the Confession's not saying it's not written in Aramaic as well. Um, Hebrew and little bits in Aramaic. And that was the native language to the people of God of old. Notice it's already making the argument that it should be translated into common language, you know, because it was originally written in the language of the common people, not in some foreign academic tongue. And then the New Testament, what was the New Testament originally written in? Greek. Greek, that's right. There's a couple Aramaic words there as well, you know, Abba, for example. But yes, basically in Greek. And so it's important for, uh, at least for ministers, to know the original languages, to, uh, in controversies of religion, to be able to discuss them and, and to go back uh, at, to the source of the translations that we have. But um, the New Testament demonstrates that the Old Testament could be translated into Greek. They quote the Old Testament in Greek. They don't quote it in Hebrew. Uh, so the apostles themselves give us an example that Scripture can be translated, that you can take the meaning of one language and uh, sufficiently uh, uh, present it in another language and and appeal to it as God's word um, so that people can understand it. Um, Even transliterating names. You don't have to say the name of Jesus in Aramaic. Uh, That's 
the name of Jesus in Hebrew or Aramaic might have been something like Yeshua, but that's never written in Scripture because the New Testament was written in Greek, and it's appropriate to use the Greek form, Jesus, and so it's appropriate to use the English form of Jesus, Jesus, um, that it's the same name uh, that can be used in, uh, according to each language. The last part on authority is in the last section, uh, uh, paragraph 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Notice this even puts the confession of faith under Scripture. Uh, they, they were putting themselves under Scripture as they wrote this. Notice it doesn't say uh, the doctrines of men are to be examined by councils or that councils ought to be uh, judged by private spirits. You know, it's putting both the individual and the corporate, the, the church as the large and the individual, all of it under Scripture as the authority to which all of them ought to be examined by and approved by and uh, draw their their um, beliefs uh, from. Now we'll talk about what are the places of church councils later on in the Confession of Faith, but the point here is that Scripture is the supreme judge, as uh, Scripture itself makes plain. That's what the apostles appeal to in controversies of religion. I know we're going quickly, and especially because we already had a late start, but any questions so far on the first two points here? The next two will go quicker. Necessity and authority of Scripture. Scripture's most necessary, uh, and Scripture has all uh, supreme authority because it is God's Word. The third point is that it is sufficient, uh, that it is given as a rule of faith in life and as a sufficient rule of faith in life, as the only rule of faith in life. Let's look at paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government to the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Why is the sufficiency of Scripture important? And think maybe in its in you know the 1600s or or even today though, why is the sufficiency of Scripture important? First, because it's true. <laughs> First, because it's true. Yes. But the second reason is that as soon as we and we live in a culture that's basically throwing that puppy in the garbage disposal, right? Um, as soon as we reject the sufficiency of Scripture. What we're saying is we're open to any other source to tell us how we ought to live our lives, what it means to follow Christ, what should that look like, and how do we do all these things. 
And as soon as you as soon as you go somewhere else, you're by definition not following the one who you say is your Lord. It, it, yeah, it opens you up to other rules of faith and life and other authorities that get put on par with Scripture to add to it or um, to add other things that you need to believe, add other things that you need to do. Um, for example, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church would say that, you know, you need to believe that uh, Mary always was a virgin to the end of her life and then was assumed into heaven. And you might be like, I didn't see that in Scripture. Uh, and there's like, no, I, I mean, some might say, well, it doesn't matter if it's in Scripture or not. It's the tradition of the church that's been passed down from the apostles. You know, people didn't mention it for a while, but then, you know, it appeared in writing, you know, centuries later, and, and voila, you know, that's why you need to believe it. Um, or that, yes, you need to pray to the saints. Oh, Scripture doesn't, you know, give us examples of why we need to pray to the saints, but it's a tradition, you know, that's been handed down, and, uh, and, and you should do it. Um, adding to the rule of faith in life from traditions that supposedly were passed down outside of Scripture. Uh, But if Scripture is sufficient, then uh, it should have all of the beliefs, all of the duties that are required of us, that there aren't other things floating out there that you don't know about that are outside of Scripture that are added to it. And, of course, the key text for a lot of these doctrines about Scripture can be found in 2 Timothy 3. Uh, 15 through 17, that scripture is able to make one wise for salvation, and that all of it, all scripture, is not just all revelation, but all scripture, that particular form of revelation is given by the inspiration of God for uh, these purposes, uh, teaching and training, to make the man of God uh, complete, uh, equipped for every good work. Uh, and so whether you take man of God to refer to, to the preacher or to every believer, uh, the effect is the same. That there's no other, things, uh, other traditions, other sources of revelation outside of Scripture needed to direct God's people in how to uh, glorify and enjoy God, to, to serve him. Uh, that's why the Catechism says, you know, what, what is the rule that God has given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The Word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old New Testament. That's why it uses the word contained. It's all there. It's in scripture. Uh, It is scripture, uh, but we're not talking about word of God that's outside of scripture. Scripture is sufficient. It gives us the whole counsel of God. Now it adds, it's it's in scripture either expressly set down or stuff that we can deduce from scripture that the message of scripture, what it means is God's word as well as the words that it uses to convey that meaning. That's inspired by God, every word of it, but also what it, what it means. We can deduce things from it. Um, you know, it, it doesn't say women ought to take the Lord's Supper, but, you know, we can, by good and necessary consequence, deduce that from Scripture, that, yes, you know, women believers who are otherwise, you know, qualified, that, yes, they should take the Lord's Supper just like men, uh, even though that's not expressly set down in Scripture, that there's... Um, when that is taken to, into account, the whole counsel of God is there. Um, let's go to the last point on the interpretation of Scripture, the perspicuity. First, paragraph 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other 
that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Uh, This does not mean that all of Scripture is super easy to understand. Anyone can understand everything. No, Scripture itself, like in the end of 2 Peter, says some parts are difficult to understand, and uh, false teachers can, can twist them. But what it is saying is that what you need to know, particularly to be saved, uh, what's the words it uses here? Things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed uh, for salvation are in some place or other clearly revealed in Scripture. So not every part of Scripture is clear, but every necessary thing is somewhere in Scripture clearly revealed. That, you know, you have to read it, you have to study it, but the ordinary use of, uh, of means that God has given, uh, not only the learned, the, the academics, or the, the, pre, the pastors, but, uh, but the whole people of God can understand them. In fact, Psalm 119 says that it makes the simple wise. Um, it's not something only for the wise, but it's also for the simple, for those who are beginning to grow in wisdom. As Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It's for the whole people of God, not just uh, for a select few. Now, part of its clarity is connected to the last paragraph here that I'm going to read. I mean, the last one to read yet. Uh, Number nine. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and made known by other places that speak more clearly. So, Scripture is its own rule of interpretation. This, again, is is keeping us from placing the ultimate authority somewhere else outside of Scripture, the Roman Catholic Church might say, you know, you, you need an infallible rule of interpretation to understand Scripture, and that's the church. Well, they would say, we do need an infallible rule of interpretation, but that is Scripture itself. The Scripture interprets Scripture, that the clearer parts shed light on the less clear part, parts, that those necessary things that we need to know that are clearly summarized somewhere in Scripture, um, that we take those things and use, uh, read Scripture in light of those things. Those things, we could say, are like the things that we confess in the Nicene Creed. You know, that general system of basic truths of Scripture um, that are from Scripture, we believe to be biblical, and and within that system that we begin to see the parts. You need the forest and you need the trees. And also, you look at the immediate context. If there's a difficult part, let's say in Colossians, well, you look in that whole chapter of Colossians. What's the flow of his argument? What's his point? What's to the point? Uh, and that sheds lights on the individual phrases and sentences. Or, you know, how does Paul typically use these words and use that to understand a particular passage? Um, We use Scripture to interpret Scripture and to understand the author's intent. Um, It's teachings on a particular topic, the way the author is using his words, and the overall system of clear and basic doctrines serve as as guardrails, at the very least, for our interpretation of Scripture. Rather than taking the clear passages and interpreting by the the less clear and more difficult passages, which is how a lot of uh, heresies often get started. And that is chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I know that's a lot for us to handle. 
Um, again, it would be good to, to consider these things, uh, to perhaps review it tomorrow and to read through the confession and uh, through that chapter. Uh, but these are important foundational truths that hopefully will also be revealed as we walk through the rest of the confession of faith. But in summary, Scripture is necessary. It's God's special revelation to us, needed for salvation. We ought to read it. We ought to know it. We ought to listen to it. It is all authority. It's supreme authority. It's what we ought to resort to and to uh, go to in any um, uncertainty. It is sufficient. It has the whole counsel of God, so we ought to give it uh, our great attention and to rest in it. And it is uh, sufficiently clear. Uh, We should approach it not as some esoteric uh, book, but rather as something that is intended for the whole people of God, that we might, as it says, Uh, worship God in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, have hope. And so, let us uh, prepare ourselves for worship today as we read and uh, listen to scripture as well, Uh, and through scripture, have patience, comfort, and hope. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your Uh, love and kindness in drawing near to us and binding yourself to us by your covenant and giving us your word by which you dwell among us and communicate with us and we might have fellowship with you. We pray that you would build us up in your word and sanctify us in your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.